Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 110, Dr. Keith Ward on Christ and the Cosmos, Part 2. Since 2009, Dr. Keith Ward has been a professorial research fellow at Heathrop College in London. Prior to this, he held posts in philosophy, theology, or religious studies at Gresham College, the University of Oxford, the University of London, Cambridge University, the University of St. Andrews, and the University of Glasgow. He's the author of more than 40 books, which include The Case for Religion, Concepts of God, Is Religion Dangerous?, The Evidence for God?, in Defense of the Soul, Rethinking Christianity, Divine Action, What the Bible Really Teaches, The Philosopher and the Gospels, Comparative Theology in Five Volumes, God, Autonomy, and Morality, and God, A Guide for the Perplexed. But he's here with us today to discuss his 2015 book called Christ and the Cosmos, A Reformulation of Trinitarian Doctrine, which he describes as a sort of concluding overview of my own theological thought. Dr. Ward, welcome back to the Trinity's podcast. Hi, Dave. Thanks very much. Dr. Ward, a number of recent theologians and even some popular Christian authors and speakers have expounded a vision of the Trinity as a loving community of equally divine selves who perfectly love one another. Do you think this is a correct understanding of the Trinity? <laughs> no, I don't. It's very emotionally moving, and it's, it's, it's quite inspiring, really, to think of God as a sort of loving community. But lots of things wrong with it, I'm afraid. Uh, and the worst one is it's just not monotheistic anymore. I mean, uh, Jesus said, uh, quoting uh, the Old Testament, of course, the Lord is one, the Lord your God is one Lord. Uh, and I think you have to stress the unity of God. And once you start talking about God as three persons loving each other, you've lost that sense of monotheism. And I want to defend monotheism as the central Christian belief. Unlike uh, Jürgen Moltmann, whom I love, of course, but uh, he actually says, Jürgen Moltmann says that monotheism is anti-Christian. I think that's totally ridiculous, Jürgen. Sorry about that. Uh, I think monotheism it has to be the Christian belief. We do not believe in three gods. So that's our central thought. There's many aspects of your book in which you're attacking what the, what has been called social Trinitarianism. Yeah. And one is just the view that there are three persons in the sense of thinking beings or three selves. Could you say a little bit about how you interpret the, quote, persons in Trinitarian tradition? Right. Well, I think this is uh, an example of how words have changed their meaning a lot. Uh, the word, when uh, the Trinity was described and still is described as three persons in one substance, that word persons did not mean in either Greek or Latin, prosopon in Greek and persona in Latin, did not mean an individual human thinking being. It was a technical term, so it didn't have a precise meaning, but everybody knows that uh, the word was taken from, etymologically, from the mask that actors wore in Greek dramas. The word in Greek, hupostasis, is more true to what it was getting at. It's one sort of thing, right? So 
so there's a misleading aspect of using the word person. Uh, perhaps I could put it simply like this. In Greek and Latin, in the early centuries of Christianity, the word person did not mean, absolutely not mean, an individual human thinking being, or even an individual thinking being of any sort. And I think most early theologians were very concerned to say there is only one mind and will in God. I think that's the, the mainstream Christian belief, there is only one mind and will in God. And if you try to use the word person in a sort of literal, modern sense, you're going to misunderstand it because you're going to think, well, there are free thinking beings in God, and that, that's that's the one that's a bit odd. So I think the word person, I suppose it's too late to drop it. You can't just drop all these words. But it's very misleading. What you have to think is, look, go back to the early centuries of the church and find out what, what the word person meant for them, and you'll see it was nothing like an individual thinking being. I know that a major concern of many social Trinitarians Beyond whatever was originally meant by the term we translate as person, a major concern is that, as they look at it in the New Testament, there seems to be a kind of friendship between the Father and the Son. They want Father and Son then to be selves so that they can genuinely have an interpersonal relationship. How do you respond to that concern of theirs? Well, I've tried to look fairly carefully at what the New Testament says about this, and it's not as clear at all. I think there's no vestige, no hint of a social trinity of three, you know, individuals uh, communicating with one another in in the New Testament. The Spirit is the crucial notion. I mean, what does the New Testament say about the Holy Spirit? It doesn't seem to be like, you know, if you had three persons communicating with each other, they'd all have a part to play in a conversation you'd expect, you know, one would have one view, another would have another, they'd discuss it, etc. The Holy Spirit doesn't discuss anything with anybody. Uh, the Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus or by the Father, and the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit is told. So if you look in the New Testament, so the Spirit is not regarded as a person, really. It's more regarded as a force or a power or uh, a sort of uh, presence. But it, it doesn't sound as though it's an individual with its own ideas and so on, you know. Uh, it is a power sent by Jesus. And it's the same if you think about the relationship between the Son and the Father. I mean, Jesus says again and again, in John's Gospels particularly, Jesus says, I speak what I hear. I don't speak of my own accord, but I speak what what, what the Father uh, says in me, really. So it's as though Jesus is functioning as a sort of medium of uh, of the will of God. So it's mysterious, and I mean, the New Testament says all about the Father, there's no doubt about that. It talks about Jesus as the Son, there's no doubt about that, and it talks about the Spirit, though, you know, lots of Christians for hundreds of years didn't think the Spirit was divine, uh, because the Spirit was sent by Jesus. It sounds a bit, you know, lower down the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So I think the New Testament evidence is a little bit, well, more than a little bit, it, it is not at all supportive of a social trinity view, it might be supportive of a binary view as the Father and the Son, but where the Spirit comes in is a little bit indeterminate. And even the Father and the Son relation is not like a relation between two persons. It's really more like a relation between the Father who determines all things and the Son who hears what the Father says and passes it on to his disciples and who asks that um, the will of the Father should be done. 
so is dependent upon the will of the father in other words again it's not very like the idea of three individuals you know it's, it's a, so the the terms are there father son and spirit it's quite you know, understandable how they came about but it's not anything like a social trinity that's what i'd say it's a threefold person god i absolutely believe in the trinity so of course i believe that's present in the new testament but not in the form of three individuals, each with their own ideas. You know, the Father actually defines and decides what's going to happen. The Son hears and obeys, and the Spirit is sent by the Son to work in the hearts of believers. And Okay, that's difficult to work out, but it's not three people. Yeah, I think about the Spirit. Sometimes Christians and theologians just will focus on the small handful of passages where the Spirit is spoken of as if it were a person or a self. But then there are all these other passages where, you know, you're baptized in it, it's sent, it seems like a power that kind of falls down on people. And Yeah, and, and John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit, and you think, right. well, how can you be filled with a person? You know, it, it just doesn't uh, fit at all. And, and theologians in general have had difficulty with the spirit. I mean, when Augustine tried his uh, views about the Trinity, he actually came up with the idea that maybe the spirit was the love between the Father and the Son. That was one of his ideas. And that's totally impersonal. I mean, love is not a person at all. So there's always been a problem with that sort of Trinity, you know, social Trinity. Now, at a couple of points in your book, it seemed to me that you were arguing that there is a personal relationship between God and Jesus, but not yeah. an interpersonal relationship between the Father and Son. Yeah, that's right. I do say that. Do you think that the New Testament distinguishes between the Son and Jesus? I would have taken those to be co-referential. No, I think the New Testament does make a fairly clear distinction. It's clearest in John, in John's Gospel, because uh, take a sentence which... Uh, a lot of Christians put a lot of uh, emphasis upon, and that is when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Right? And, and some Christians say, oh, that's Jesus. You've got to come by way of Jesus. But actually, that's totally against the whole tenor of John's Gospel, which is that it's the Word of God, or the wisdom of God, by which people must come to God. So God, people must come to God by the way of divine wisdom, which is in fact incarnate in Jesus. And uh, that's the big distinction, that the Word is in Christ. You know, where, when John's Gospel starts, Alfred says the Word was God and the, uh, and the Word was with God. Well, that with is very important. There's some sort of distinction there. And yet, 
it's a distinction which has to be compatible with being identical with God, all right? So it's a distinction and an identity at the same time. You've got to have both of those things there. And so, in, in a sense, when Jesus prays to the Father, I would see that, and I, I think the New Testament represents this, as the human consciousness of Jesus relating to the divine consciousness itself. And by praying to the Father, Jesus is attempting to, or succeeding in, actually, communion with the creator of the whole universe. Now, I don't think Jesus would want to claim that as a man, he was the creator of the whole universe. I can't imagine that. But you could still say that uh, he has a certain unique sort of identity with the creator of the universe, but it's a dependent, his humanity is dependent on the divinity. Okay. So I think, again, personal relationship is not quite right. It's part of it. But the way that Jesus relates to the Father is the relation of Jesus' humanity to the divinity which underlies the whole universe. And in Jesus, we say, Christians say, that was perfect. That was a perfect unity. But it's still a unity which includes that distinction between my dependent humanity and that in me which is actually part of divinity you know we can have that internal conversation ourselves in a sense and say well there's myself as a as a human self and there's the spirit of god which i hope indwells me and i can communicate with that but if i were a perfected human being then that unity would be perfect and i think in christ it was so what I'm saying here is, is not that I've got a clear answer to these questions. It is that if you try to be too conceptually definite, too precise about was this a personal relationship or was it a union at a, at a deeper level where, where two things become one, you know, which Jesus said about marriage, you know, the two become one flesh, is it, is it, or the great mystics say uh, the ultimate stage of human life is union with God. And you can't make these polar oppositions. You have to say, well, both of these have a place in human life. You want to relate to God, and Jesus wants to relate to God. Jesus, as a man, wants to relate to God. But at the same time, Jesus wants to say, but I am one with God. There is a unity there. And I think the Christian faith is the really supreme mystery, but very rational mystery of unity and diversity. So, Dr. Ward, then in your view, when Jesus speaks and says things like I and me, you think that sometimes he's referring to himself, that is to the man, and sometimes he's referring to the eternal word that indwells him? Yeah, I think that's precisely right. And uh, although um, this, the word belongs to John's gospel, even in the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus never calls himself the son of God. He always uses this very mysterious expression, the son of man. Now, there's a host of all sorts of linguistic problems about this. But it does talk about, in a strange way, Jesus refers to himself in an impersonal way. He says, the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, for example. He doesn't say, I, Jesus, have power to forgive sins. And there, so there seems to be a strange sense in which Jesus refers sometimes to himself and a way which doesn't seem to be just talking about the human nature of Jesus, right? <laughs> and I think, so you find in the New Testament a distinction 
between uh, something of divinity in Jesus or incarnate embodied in Jesus and and Jesus' humanity. Jesus' humanity is fallible. Uh, you know, Jesus said, I, I don't know uh, when the end will be. No, no, nobody knows but the Father. Or Jesus says, I don't know whether James and John can sit next to me in the feast in heaven. Uh, that's not for me to say. And there's that, again, duality of saying there are things I don't know that God does know, which is a bit odd <laughs> if you think Jesus is just God like that, right? So you have to say, well, um, the only thing I can think of is the nearest thing I can think of to gain understanding of this is to think of the way in which mystics like Teresa of Avila or um, you know, John of the Cross would talk about the ultimate prayer being a prayer of union when all distinctions pass away and between God and me there is no visible distinction. But I still don't want to say that I'm omniscient and omnipotent, of course. It's that sort of union that I think is consummated in the person of Jesus. That's, that's how I see it. So, Dr. Ward, in this incident, I believe it's in all the synoptics, but I think in Matthew, uh, Jesus, he says to a man, your sins are forgiven, and then he gets the objection that, hey, only God can forgive sins. Who does this guy think he is? Yep. He heals the man, and then he says, so that you will know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Yep. Isn't the Son of Man him? Isn't he the same as the Son of Man? Isn't, isn't it the man that forgives sins? Well, yes, um, but I, I would say that means um, this is the man in his capacity as the vehicle and channel of the divine power. So, I mean, one original context, this is very uh, controversial, I think, but I mean, everything in this area is controversial, that nobody think there is one clear, true answer to this. There's a lot of... Uh, possible argument, but the phrase son of man is most obviously used in the book of Daniel mm -hmm. where it talks about um, the terrifying militaristic powers of the world which are symbolized as great beasts arising out of the ocean and then it says these beasts will rule the earth but after them there will be one like the son of man who appears and his reign will be everlasting okay and I think a lot of commentators take this to mean the Son of Man is a symbolic figure for the reign of, of peace and justice in the world, for the kingdom of God, in fact, or for the one who brings about the kingdom of God. So I think when Jesus used the phrase the Son of Man, I mean, I don't know, do I? But, I, but my view would be that when Jesus uses the phrase the Son of Man, he's talking about himself as the liberator to bring in the kingdom of God and as such, as such, as the, the, the chosen, the Messiah, the chosen one, the one who is elected by God to bring in the kingdom, it's in that capacity that he forgives sins. So it's not something that anybody could do. It has to be somebody who has a specific uh, vocation of being the Messiah. So I would say when he says the Son of Man, when Jesus says the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he's saying that I, a human being indeed, am nevertheless appointed by God mm -hmm. to uh, bring in the kingdom of God and make it present by my healing activity among you. And so it's a, a reference to his function or role, and uh, not just his personality. So it's, it's the man that forgives, not just the word or the logos. It's the man because he is commissioned yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. It's because he is commissioned. I, yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm. I would never want to be taken as denying that Jesus is actually identifiable with 
the word of God, with the Logos, uh, and with the etern- that eternal aspect of the wisdom of God, uh, I do affirm that identity. My only question is, what on, what on earth could it mean in terms of modern philosophical thought? When you say identity, though, you mean that they are closely associated? Not, not that they're numerically one? <laughs> um, closely associated. Well, um... Because it seems to me that you you think different things are true of of the man than are of true of the word, so you must not think that they're identical in the logical sense. If you're if by identity in the logical sense, uh, you mean that whatever you say about A, you have to say about B as well for them to be yeah. identical. That I'm not using identity in that sense. Yeah. But I don't accept that sense anyway. But that's another uh, that's another issue probably. But I think identity is a much broader thing. Uh, just to give one simple example, which. Uh, I am identical with a certain little baby which lived, you know, many, many years ago, uh, and that's certainly identity, but I wouldn't say the same things about that baby and about me. I just say that is me. So I think there are, that's just one example, but there are many senses of identity which are a bit looser uh, uh, than that very strict logical sense of identity, and it's in one of those that Jesus is identical with God, right? <laughs> if that makes any sense. Well, most philosophers, I think, would say that you are the same person as that baby. Yeah. That is literally numerically the same as you. It's just that this is consistent with change across time. Yeah. But then I think a lot of times when you say identity in the book, you have in mind qualitative sameness to some degree. Yes. Which, of course, there are infinite degrees of qualitative similarity, whereas numerical similarity seems to be an all or nothing kind of idea. Yeah, I don't think it is. I think that's an unduly uh, restrictive idea. I mean, I can understand there being such a notion of identity, but I don't think it's one that's very useful uh, in uh, in philosophy generally. I think it's actually quite misleading. Uh, I've been put to misleading uses by various people. And I think you have to be much more flexible about the very different ways in which we use something like identity. So... Like a lot of logic, it's it's, uh, it's a neat, uh, precise device, but it's not much use in asking lots of questions that we might ordinarily want to ask, like, are you the same person who committed this crime 20 years ago, when you wouldn't be concerned about a strict logical sense. That's not your concern. There are other things that are your concern, and they'd be very difficult to work out, but you still... It will be identity you'll be thinking about. I mean, that's, as you know, that's a, a terribly uh, contested uh, question in philosophy. But I want a more, a more fluid, organic, uh, pluralistic sense of identity. And I'd, I'd be happy to go along with a lot of early Christian theologians who said the identity of Jesus and God the Father is unique, ineffable, and mysterious. And I'd say, okay, I'll go along with that. <laughs> There's a unique kind of unity of some sort there. Yes, in the sense in which uh, people uh, in the great mystical traditions of the Christian church have said uh, in the deepest levels of prayer, you lose your sense of separateness and feel an intense identity with God. That's a proper use of the word identity, but you're not thinking about exact logical descriptions. In fact, this sense of identity might be beyond any linguistic description you could possibly think of. I'm a romantic in the end.
Dr. Ward, I think many Trinitarians will hold that the Father, Son, and Spirit, whether those are understood as selves or modes of oneself, are intrinsic to the being of the one God. If I understand your view, your view is that God appears to humans as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the one God is triune in that way, which is to say only in relation to us, and would not be triune in that way if there were no humans or no creations is this a correct understanding of your view? And has anyone objected to you in conversation that it's not Trinitarian? Uh, nobody's objected to me in conversation, but people have objected in print, certainly. And there are theologians who would say, well, God must be in God's own self, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's the end of that. That's what the Bible tells you to think, so you should think that. Now, I think that is totally wrong and totally misleading. It's perfectly clear to me that uh, fathers have to be genetic males who are capable of generating offspring and that inner culture uh, wouldn't be on the earth of course but an imagined culture perhaps a real culture on some other planet in some other galaxy um, there wouldn't be any sexually active y chromosome bearing animals and so the word father wouldn't make sense at all some missionaries have a, had a problem with uh, translating feed my sheep into language that Inuit in the Arctic or Antarctic could uh, understand, and uh, they tried feed my penguins, but it didn't really have the same effect. And uh, it's the same thing with the word father. I mean, if you had a culture where there weren't any sexually active beings of two sexes, the word simply wouldn't make sense. So I, I think you have to think outside the box a bit and think, well... Isn't the word father very human-centered? It's only understandable by animals who sexually reproduce. It's the same with the word son, obviously. And the word spirit, which means breath, associated with the word breath, could only be understood by beings which uh, actually inhale and exhale and uh, live in that way. So these terms are earth-bound. Now, I think they're correct for earth-bound creatures. They're things we can understand. But you only need an understanding of language and where you get your words from to realize that words only make sense in cultures which have the features that enable them to understand what you're talking about. So I think Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are too earthbound to sexually active animal beings who breathe oxygen to be applicable to a God who must be capable of being understood in cultures very different from that. So I expect that God will be Trinitarian without being Father, Son, or Holy Spirit uh, all over the universe. Would it be fair to say that in your view, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are a phenomenal trinity in the Kantian sense? Uh, well, essentially the words we use uh, could only make sense in our sort of uh, life, our form of life. Uh, and, and there might be di very different forms of life. Now, let's see. I would say this, there must be something analogous to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in any culture which understands God. I'm, I'm really interested in thinking, supposing we got to the stars, just pretend we get to the stars, would we conduct a Christian mission on the stars? Would we send missionaries to Alpha Centauri? And I think that's a very interesting question. And, um, well, I think it would be no good if they, uh, if they weren't animals, but some other sort of being, we can hardly imagine now. It'd be no good to talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but I think we still could talk about a Trinitarian, a threefold God. So 
uh, you can put that in that form you like if you like what in a universe which let's suppose has millions of different life forms very different in kind from each other would we still be able to talk about a threefold god and i think we would and that, that's why i think father son and holy spirit aren't the only ways to talk about a threefold god there's a one point in your book where it sounded to me like you actually have uh, three trinities and the Father, Son, and Spirit are the kind of outermost layer. Okay. On page 256, you say, quote, This economic trinity, the trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit that we humans experience is rooted in a threefoldness of subjectivity, creativity, and unitive love, which is not strictly identical with the trinity as it is expressed in the human world. That, in turn, is rooted in a deeper imminent threefoldness of primal origin, expressed thought, and beatific love, end quote. Yep, that's right. One could say that your view is Trinitarian, but it's, there is a, actually I'm not sure if this is right, there, there is an intrinsic threefoldness in God, but it's not the Trinity that's normally talked about, it's, it's a different triad. Uh, well, that triad, uh, there, there are three shells, if you like, of the Trinity, yeah, that's right. But I'm not just inventing that off the top of my head. Uh, these are things which have been said by theologians like St. Augustine, for example, who tried to distinguish between the Trinity in itself, the imminent Trinity, what, what God is like in God's self, and the economic Trinity, how God appears to us. And he tr Augustine tried to make that distinction, and many theologians have tried to make that distinction. And that's the sort of thing I'm doing. I mean, it's, it is rooted, I don't make a big thing of this, but it is rooted in ancient Christian theological thought. Um, but you're right, I do. See, when we talk about the Trinity, we have to be conscious that we're, we're using language. And this is the source of such a lot of theological problems. I think the worst thing Christians can do is to think that by using certain words or phrases, they have solved the problem once and for all. Whereas, like philosophy, theology has to be perpetually reformulating its very approach to the problems uh, and the questions and what you are able to say. So language enables you to think, but it also limits the ways in which you can think. So those three-fold things about God in God's self, God in relation to the universe at large, and God in relation to this planet, which is what those three-fold things are talking about, uh, there are really the remarks about what language, what concepts might be appropriate for thinking about God in a more than simply earthly context, in a cosmic context, and then beyond that, in a context perhaps beyond any creation. It may be impossible to think of words. We may have passed the limits of language, but um, there are attempts. And I would want to say this, uh, in the end, theology is a series of very inadequate attempts to express things, to show that Christian faith is rational and explicable, but still we can't comprehend, we can't fully understand all the details of it because our language is so intrinsically limiting. I mean, just imagine somebody from the year 1500 trying to understand an explanation of quantum mechanics. They wouldn't have the concepts to enable them to understand it, but they might be able to think of some sorts of expansion of their concepts. So that's what I have in mind, that theology in, a, in this 
new vision of the universe as a huge 14 billion euro expanding universe of a thousand million stars and a thousand million galaxies beyond that. In that new vision of the universe, you have to do something to extend your imaginative vision. So you have to try and think of different sorts of concepts. And, and that's, I think, the theologian's task in, in the world today. Dr. Ward, I noticed that many times in the book you refer to God using impersonal pronouns such as it yeah. and which instead of personal yeah. ones like he and who. Yeah. Why do you do that? <laughs> Why do I do that? Uh, well, uh, probably because I'm inconsistent. Um, <laughs> but uh, if I try to think of a good reason why I do that, it is because I think that God, the creator of all things, is a long way beyond any sexually connotative terms like he or she. I wanted to try to avoid that. So sometimes it's that. Uh, and sometimes I think, well, in the end, God is personal and you've got to use either he or she. So let's go with the tradition. So on the whole, I think I use he or she where I'm referring to traditional descriptions of God. I mean, if you talk like the father, you obviously have to say he. I mean, that's mm -hmm. it. And where I'm trying to think more broadly, outside that concept of talking about fathers and sons, I try to, to use a non-gendered term. But, uh, you know, I'm of the age where I've gone through this age of being challenged on gender-specific terms. We seem to have come out of that to a different sort of age, I don't know. So I'm probably just confused about the whole thing. <laughs> <But> <laughs> There's no deep uh, reason? I, I kind no, of there's no there, real deep reason. No, I'm afraid not. No, no. I kind of wonder if there was a deep reason, honestly. L let me put it this way. When I had read some of your previous books, I took you to be what I call a one-self Trinitarian, where the one God, the Trinity, is an omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, intelligent agent who relates right. to us simultaneously in three different ways. But yep. I noticed that whenever you talk about God as a self or a person or an agent, that you usually, you throw in an as there. In other words, you say, it, we, we think of God as that way, but then at other points you emphasize that we must keep in mind that we can't at all understand how God intrinsically is. But if he was, if he was literally a self, uh, wouldn't we understand to some extent how God intrinsically is? So I was yeah. wondering if you if you said it for God because you think in the final deepest analysis uh, our concept of a self uh, or a person doesn't apply literally to God. Yeah, I would put it. I think like this that God has personal attributes. We certain personal trends like thinking and acting and intending apply to God, but that God is not a person. So uh, if a self is a person, then I've always felt that term is too mixed up with human 
limitations and connotations to apply to a God who is the source of every possible thing that could ever exist. And that must be far beyond anything we can think of as a person. So I do tend, it's not that I think of God as impersonal, it's that I think of God as suprapersonal, including personal attributes, but not defined by them. I think that's what I think. But the, uh, but the personal attributes, are those, are those extrinsic to the essence, if I could put it that way? Are they not intrinsic to God? I'm not able to answer that question. I don't know whether they're intrinsic to God or not. I think they're intrinsic to God as God relates to created beings, yes. All right? Whether that itself, and you'd then be asking the question, but is, that, is it essential to God, as mm-hmm. Multiman thinks it is, and other people too, is it essential to God that God creates something? I, I don't know how to answer that question. I, I've just gone beyond the edge of what I can think. Um, I can think of no way of answering that. I don't know. (laughs) So it's an ultimate agnosticism about what God has to do or may or may not do. But a a strong belief that, well, given the way things are and the sort of world there is, then we have to talk about God in personal terms. So when you say God is personal as God relates to us, so from our perspective, it seems for all the world like God is a personal being. But that leaves it as an open question whether or not God intrinsically is personal. Is that a way to put it? Yes, I think that's a good way to put it, yeah. Dr. Ward, I was reading chapters 37, 38 of your book, and it seems to me that you're reasoning like this, that if the one God is the Trinity, and the Father, of course, is not the Trinity, then the Father is not the one God. At least I saw that uh, reasoning behind yeah. what you were saying there. Yeah. What, what do you do with passages in the New Testament which seem to assume the numerical sameness of the one God with the one that Jesus calls Father? So, for instance, John chapter 20, the risen Jesus tells Mary, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so, he's talking about the same being twice, right? It's not, yeah. he's not going back to two different beings. No. Or First Corinthians 8, for us, there's one God, comma, the Father. You don't identify the two strictly. Well, no. I, uh, I think many theologians have thought that the New Testament sometimes refers to God alone, or the Father alone, as God. And, and, uh, and where God is used on its own, it, they say it, it only means the Father. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's true in a qualified sense. In the following sense, there's a, a quotation from Gregory of Nyssa, which I rather like, which is that uh, the Father originates all things, and the Son executes all things, and the Spirit completes all things, right? Uh, and, uh, it's a little phrase. So I think you might think of, of God the Father as the source of all things, who originates all things, and in that sense, you could say, uh, you could just refer to that as God, full stop. But you'd still have missed something out if you did that. So it's a way you can speak, and it would be intelligible that that's God. But as a matter of fact, uh, God is never without the expression of God's thought, which is the eternal word, and the creative energy, which is capable of bringing about a universe, which is the spirit. Those things always exist. So I think calling the Father alone God is a permissible way of speaking, 
And of course, non-Trinitarians would do something like that anyway. So you have to say, mm-hmm. but they're not totally wrong. But uh, it's and it's understandable people could use that. Even Jesus might use that to Mary Magdalene, for example. But it's it's not an ad, it's not a fully adequate understanding of what God is. Doctor Ward, thanks for talking with us. Okay. Well, it's been a hard uh, questioning, uh, but a very fair one, and uh, I've been very pleased to explore it with you. Thanks. This week's thinking music has been Wren, Trio for Three Bassoons, by Grossman, Ewell, and Granger. You can hear or download this whole track at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinities podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes Store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org slash blog slash review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? If so, you can donate a dollar each month via PayPal. And of course, any one-time gift is much appreciated. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.